Hi, and welcome to the House Hack Podcast. An exploration of modern work and how young professionals and businesses can work together in pursuit of the careers of tomorrow. Ryan and Charlie here. We're so glad you could join us. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome back to the House Hack Podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Kabir Bali, who is the co-founder of Jumpstart, which is the UK's only startup graduate program. A 2015 graduate from Oxford University, he has a four years experience as a strategy consultant at Monitor Deloitte to Hand, which he uses to help match London's fastest growing startups with the UK's best graduate talent. How are you doing, Kabir? Yeah, very good, thanks. Uh, very, very nice to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure to have you. And of course, you can find Jumpstart at jumpstartuk.com. And today yeah. we're we'll talking all about how graduates' careers are changing and what we can do to get ahead of the curve. So probably the starting point is, do you want to explain a bit more about what Jumpstart does and how it helps students and graduates? Yeah, so I mean, just to sort of take it back to the, to the start in terms of why we decided to set it up. So Matthew and I were both at school together. We then both graduated around the same time from different universities and I, I suppose we both kind of went through that uh, process of applying for jobs and going through that journey of being a graduate or a, a student-to-be graduate and found it quite limiting in terms of the choices that were sort of on offer to us. I think there were it was very hard to get past the kind of corporate grad scheme even if you wanted to it was difficult to evaluate other options and there was a lot of sort of social and societal pressure to go down a certain route uh, and I think as, as kind of having been at school and university we're used to sort of having this kind of clear uh, pathway set up for you and it just feels like that the graduate program or whether it be consulting finance banking is the sort of next step, step along that uh, journey and, and mm. it, it's quite disconcerting having to apply for a different type of role that's maybe not as well structured so that's kind of where everyone ends up but I suppose even at the time we were you know Deliveroo and Monzo were starting to be a bit of a thing I, I had a few friends who are going off down the startup route and doing these other strange things and you know it felt like there was a life outside of that we, that we always in the back of our minds felt we could you know potentially get involved in and then as you say I spent three or four years at uh, Monitor Deloitte um, mainly in the digital strategy and sort of innovation venturing side of things so we were doing a lot of trying to um, I guess not copy and pasting but appropriating a lot of the startup sort of Eric Reese type concepts into large mm -hmm. clients and helping them run uh, run ventures for them and, and kind of use the lean startup model as a way of, of getting to market quicker. And I suppose there was a part of me which felt like this is great and this is really interesting and I'm working with some interesting companies, but ultimately all these methods that I'm talking about and sort of, you know, um, preaching about, I guess, to, to clients are really kind of embedded in the startup ecosystem. So surely that's a better place to potentially, you know, work out how these things happen. And so Matthew and I actually both were sort of looking into working at startups and just finding the whole process of applying for jobs in that area very, very difficult. We found that the whole uh, ecosystem is very like word of mouth driven. Um, so we felt that it was quite inefficient and we just felt that there wasn't an easy way to, for graduates or, or, you know, recent graduates, we weren't really graduates at the time, to get into that market, even though the startup um, ecosystem is booming. I think there's sort of you know, 10 times more unicorns in the UK than there were uh, three or four years ago. The, the ecosystem as a whole, so the incubator, accelerator, VC world is, is, is really growing as well. So there's this massive growth. I think there's also a, bit, a lot of growth within the student um, market and industry for people wanting to go down more purpose-led careers. So working in startups which have a social impact or are trying to be socially impactful. Uh, and also this kind of desire to work in a small organization where you have more autonomy. So there is that kind of 
both sides of the market were sort of growing, but there was no one that was able to kind of combine the two of them. So that's what we wanted to do with Jumpstart. Um, and so the initial idea was really, we looked at Teach First and saw how they'd kind of elevated teaching and, and made it into a profession that you know, could get young, smart, hungry graduates into, um, perhaps in a way that wasn't there before, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. I know there's some controversy about Teach First, but, but ultimately I think they have been quite successful uh, doing that and creating a brand for themselves. So that was the initial idea. So the initial idea was this kind of having this rotations around different startups with training and mentorship and support, which was like a completely ridiculously terrible solution to the problem. And so what we've done now is kind of really refine that and work it into a graduate program, which provides the upfront training. So we train our graduates through a week long uh, sort of training course, place them with our startup. So we actually get the startups to come in and pitch to our graduates in what we call startup spotlight. So that allows the graduate to understand a lot more about what the company is all about. There's job descriptions on paper are very bad at doing that, particularly in a startup where the role can be quite ambiguous. So once they've selected a, a few startups to interview at from a, a long list of those presenting, we then help them through that interview process. And then once they've actually landed that job, we actually provide ongoing support. So we'll do things like, um, uh, Matthew and myself be mentors to them so we'll we talk to them every couple of weeks see how they're doing make sure that they need it if they need any extra training or extra connections with people in the industry we can give that to them so if they're a marketing person we connect them with someone who's done marketing for three or four years to see if there's someone they could talk to to get a sense of how to grow their career we also run events for them as well so we did one a few weeks back on how to ask for a raise so you know as a graduate six months in how do you have that conversation about asking for a raise so we had two heads of people from startups come in and talk about that um so we run those sort of things and then as we're going as we open up i guess with coronavirus we're having we're doing more social events sort of you know socials and booking out pubs and making sure our community of 50 plus graduates can actually get to meet each other and get to know each other awesome that's a lovely summary and uh, it sounds like you guys are doing some really really cool work uh, but probably just taking it back a second to that step from Martin Deloitte. I know you said you were working on the lean startup models and you're bringing in a bit of experience with effectively how startups should work, how they should grow. But taking that leap into starting your own thing, like how was that as a journey and what challenges did you face to like leave Deloitte and start your own business? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I, I can't sort of claim too much adversary because um Deloitte and Monitor were really good to me. I mean, I took a career break. So I took three months sabbatical in back in March. So it was the start of the pandemic. So people thought we were a bit crazy to do this, to quit our jobs and do this during a pandemic. But the, but my company was very good to me. They gave me three months of as a sabbatical and said, look, if you want to come back, that's not a problem. You know, give it a go. We're going to support you for that. Um, so that was quite a nice backstop that I that I always had. And, you know, they were always, it wasn't like I was going off to a competitor. So I felt like I had quite a lot of support from, from that sense. Um, and then obviously doing it with someone else, doing it with Matthew was, was, was quite helpful. I think for us, really, we spent a lot of time doing a lot of research before we started. We probably could have spent even longer, actually, but we spent a lot of time building up. A, we had a website already. Uh, we'd actually tested it on a number of student jobs boards to see what the kind of uptake was. I think we interviewed, you know, over 100 startups to get a sense of whether this was a problem to solve. So I think that was the thing that in our minds, we knew that there, there was a problem that, that needed solving, that this was quite a big problem from both a graduate and a startup perspective. Graduates couldn't get into startups and wanted to. Startups found it hard to actually access graduate talent, even when they wanted to. Um, so that, that we, we, we gathered a lot of a big body of evidence before we actually took the step. So it wasn't like we were kind of, um, you know, um, going around in the dark trying to find something. Yeah, almost like making sure you're making a evidence-based approach to what you're doing and always backing it up as well. It always helps as well when you go and pitch it to people, like this is why it can work because I've got the evidence and done the research yeah. as well, which is really, really good. I think then kind of with that step, with that journey, how does this like 
impact you're having on young people? Does that align with like, your personal mission? You, if you have one defined already and like what real, what extent is that yeah. realized through Jumpstart? <laughs> I mean, I could sort of, you know, lie to you and pretend that I have some sort of personal uh, theological vision in my head of what I want to do in terms of changing the world. I didn't really, I, I, I quite like just solving problems and like coming up with solutions to things and like building something which is like, I think is a genuine, like generally does solve that problem, which I don't think actually with Jumpstart we have yet found our product market fit exactly yet. But I, that for me is what I find quite fun. I like that. I do enjoy that doing my job as a consultant at university. I mean, maybe that's a bit selfish, but like I, that's what I enjoy doing. Um, I like I like trying to solve actual problems and coming up with cool solutions. That's kind of what motivates me more than anything else and gives me satisfaction. I don't really have any personal mission beyond obviously wanting to you know, help people and help the world become a better place. But I think most people would probably say that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's always a useful perspective, though, to have that problem-solving nature, because it means you can almost do anything as well, just something that you find yourself as being a useful person as. But I kind of add to a bit of a challenge of it. Is there mm -hmm. someone in your jumpstart history of the program that you feel like you've made a huge impact on that's been something a meaningful experience to you like someone that you maybe took on at an early stage who had that self-doubt and then took them throughout that process and they kind of found their dream role like is there someone that you think really is a shining example of what you do yeah definitely I mean I think um the ones the people I guess I'm most happy about helping are the ones that maybe weren't really looking at startups who hadn't really thought about startups as a career before um so, I mean, one grad to just pick out, and I'm sure she won't mind, is, is Charlie Morgan. So she was at Cambridge studying history of art, and I think she'd always wanted to go down the kind of art uh, route or the creative route. And I think literally out of, you know, for whatever reason, threw in an application to Jumpstart and I guess found out a bit more about the startup world. She was great. She had all the skills we were looking for and is now at Beam um, as an ops exec, um, the kind of very well-known social enterprise uh, company that's doing, doing the waves at the moment. And I think, like, for us, it was... What was nice is that she definitely would never have considered startups as a career. I mean, she thought it was like startups is like this tech bro sort of place where like all these coders sit around in hoodies and she just had no idea like what a startup was or the impression and stereotype of it was, was very, A, a very masculine and kind of uh, difficult to reach one and, and B, one that she didn't think played to her strengths at all. And actually going through the program, learning about the different roles, doing the training week, hearing from all these different startups, I think she just realized actually, you know, Every, every company is a tech company to some extent, right? Um, and actually, they're all solving some quite interesting uh, problems that, that her mind actually is well suited to. So that, that she's one that's, you know, always been, that, that was a quite a nice um, success story for us. I think going right back to the start, Alex Boyle, who was, again, was actually at Cambridge as well. And he was kind of on our first cohort. And when we were still kind of really quite greedy in terms of what the program was, he kind of really back to us and thought that we had something there and even though we were changing exactly what the program was every two weeks because we got some new feedback that you know rotations are never going to work so you know, full-time placements and this training thing isn't going to work and xyz and he was always very supportive of us and he's actually now part of our kind of um informal board advising us and, and helps us along the way so he's now third for in a product manager role um, and has been since about august last year nice love that love that and i think um you alluded to it a bit earlier as well, but I'd love to dive into a bit more on the differences between a startup and a corporate environment. So it's something that yeah. there's a lot of kind of myths around as well. I'd love to think kind of what are the key differences that stand out for you and maybe what is it that contributes to that kind of tech bro uh, facade? Is Because it, it, it is a bit of a facade, I think. Yeah, so I think, I mean, full disclosure, I haven't actually worked in a startup. 
And Matthew, if you ever talk to him, will always claim that he worked at a startup. It was actually backed by Warner Brothers. I'm not sure how. So in some ways, we're a bit fraudulent because you haven't actually ever worked in a startup. But I mean, we've obviously speak, spoken to hundreds and hundreds of them. We've you know, experienced it through our graduates over 50 times now. So we have a pretty good idea of, of, of what they're like. And we have done a couple of webinars on this as well. I think in terms of working in a kind of early I mean, the main thing I would say, which is the obvious point, is there is there is just a lot more ambiguity and responsibility. Like I was as a consultant when I first joined, I think it was probably eight months before I was allowed to kind of hold a meeting with a client, um, probably even longer than that. Now, if you're working in a kind of, uh, you know, commercial or in a startup, it's probably day two is the point where you're being thrown in front of a client. Like you just have to learn by by kind of being at the cold face and actually just getting mm-hmm. on and learn by doing in a way that you don't. In a, in, a, in a corporate job and when I say corporate I'm just comparing it to consulting because that's the only thing I know so I'm not going to assume things about other corporate jobs but that that would be the main one in terms of responsibility I think the second is um what I'd say is for us anyway the companies that we work with is the ability to actually grow with the company because you're joining at an early stage potentially when they've just raised a series a or a seed stage and they're looking to grow fast you can quite become a head of x or a senior developer or a senior product manager because you're actually riding the wave of, of the company. So some of our firms we work with have started off with 20 people and actually now six months in, they're, they're, they're you know, over 80 people. So imagine being on that, in that 20 man team, 20 person team, sorry, and then growing up to 80. You can, if you prove yourself quickly, you can really kind of grow pretty fast. I think the other thing that's quite different is that you're, you're doing something quite tangible. So whether it's in marketing or sales or business, business, and, business analysis, you're like helping build and craft an actual product in a way that kind of the financial services industry or in consulting or banking, you're kind of like supporting everyone, which is important, but you're doing a lot of like building slides and creating theoretical models, but not actually like trying to see, sell something, trying to see what happens when you throw it to a customer. Do they hate it? Do they like it? What do we change? It's a much more kind of like tangible selling and trying to scale a product, which I think is a, is a really useful skill, which you don't necessarily get in big corporate companies, particularly with consulting uh, and banking. Um, and obviously, these are all quite role dependent, but you tend to get more technical skills. So if you're working in in operations or a BA type role, you'll learn a lot more about the kind of technical skills that underpin data science in a way that you probably wouldn't do necessarily in consulting where things are probably still relatively non-technical. There's probably loads of others, but I think those are the kind of main ones. Yeah, and I wonder on your thoughts on foundational skills, because it's a it's a common thought that you need to or you should go to join a bigger organization before you go to yeah. a startup you know the kind of classic thing we hear is is to get a certain skill level or a certain experience level to then be able to to justify maybe the responsibility that you get at a startup i'm not quite sure but uh yeah what do you think to that kind of typical yeah. journey of that foundational skill to then go to a startup i think um i mean the the, the, the main reason why people do it right, is because if I've got a McKinsey or a Monitor Deloitte or a Goldman's on my CV, that's good. That's good, like signaling. That's a good signaling mechanism. So mm-hmm. it means that when you're if you're a startup or an organization, you're going through thousands of CVs. That's quite a useful. You know that they're a good company. They have they hire good people. They probably have reason, reasonably good training. Like that's a good signaling mechanism. I'm not sure that the actual. I mean, the content of it is that different to some other places. So, for example, I know that like a lot of people now are putting like X Deliveroo or X uh, Monzo on their on their LinkedIn, because actually those companies are now the ones that are seen as the, the pioneers. So I do think that like people are now respecting the fact that actually working in an early stage startup, you actually have a lot more to talk about in an in interview. You're not just talking about like, oh, well, you know, in this project, I helped 
you know, create this debt, which someone may or may not have seen after six weeks of having, you know, spent up until midnight, you know, building it out. Like you've actually built and scaled the product. You've, you know, maybe sold a new business or created a new feature or, you know, you, you, you've got a lot of tangible experience you can talk about. Yeah, you, you might not have the signaling mechanism of a big company, but I think under the surface of that, you know, you've actually done stuff which is probably more tangible than you can talk about in an interview than in a, in a bigger corporate. So I think that in terms of the, the content that's changing, I think also people in terms of the perception of startups and the startup ecosystem, that's slightly changing as well. And it's seen as actually you don't just have to go off to a Goldman Sachs to be seen as a legit person to work in like a VC or work in a fintech, for example. Actually, early stage startup experience is also really, really valuable. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned that growth of venture capital of, of, of businesses getting from that early stage to that medium stage to even kind of unicorn status. You mentioned a couple there. What are the kind of drivers behind that? Cause I think it's something that seems like to me from my grad recent grad perspective, it's like the last five, 10 years that has really contributed to that growth. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's a slightly difficult one because actually if you look at the, um, like everyone says there's like way more startups now and I'm sure there are because partly because the, the VC market and the, the funding is just there, right? I mm. mean, in terms of the fact that the, the era of cheap money over the last 10, 15 years, like has meant that, you know, the VC world with high returns is, has seen a lot more money pumped into it. Uh, the other, the kind of paradox that is particularly in Europe is there are very few startups that are actually reaching that kind of, even though there are more and more now, that are reaching that really high growth scale up level a lot uh, compared to the US where I think a lot of them still do. So I think almost it's a bit of a paradox where I think there's a lot more like money in the early startup world and it's easier than ever to actually create a company with cloud computing and, you know, existing website platforms and that sort of thing. But actually that ability to scale to the next level is still quite limited in the UK and Europe. And obviously if you look at the world as a whole, like the tech industry is still dominated by these massive oligopolistic players like it's not it's not like we've got loads of competition going on at the top so it's kind of a bit of a you know two different stories i think going on at the same time yeah no it's interesting and i guess the the thought maybe is going to be for for people to think about within their careers do they want to work in a startup and actually might they ride that wave quickly to an acquisition to a point where they actually need to leave that startup to keep the startup culture that they like or the responsibility yeah. that they like because they've almost joined a bigger organization by virtue of being acquired. So it's yeah. kind of, again, not something I've experienced personally, but it's an interesting thing to think on what a, an internal business culture kind of contributes to, um, to the reasons for joining uh, a business. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So I think kind of moving on to the, the next part of the chat, we've, we've really started talking about it, you know, thinking about, how graduate careers specifically are changing. And and I think that the best place to start with that is defining where we're coming from before thinking about where we're going. So what does the kind of graduate career of the past look like for you? Yeah, see, I'm going to slightly be contrarian here. I actually (laughs) think a lot of the a lot of the sort of things that people say, oh, the graduate career is changing and like people are having more portfolio portfolio careers and, and skipping around a lot. It's, it's difficult, actually, if you look at the, in the same way that, like, it's always nice to create a nice narrative, if you actually look at the data, it's quite complicated. So there's a lot of professions where that hasn't changed for a long time. For example, consulting, the model is, for the last 20 or 30 years has been that you do two or three years and then you go off to a big corporate or you go and do an MBA and then, you know, you join a big company as an exec. Similarly, in kind of, uh, in law, for example, like, 
although people are, are moving around legal firms more often, they're still st staying as lawyers. They're just moving to different firms where they're getting paid more. It's not, so there's, there's a lot of industries that are not, that are like not really changing that much. And I think, I remember we did a lot of research on this back when I was working as a consultant. Like, I think what we, the difference now is that graduates or people of the millennial or the latest generation, whatever it's called, are, they're quite, they're a lot more interested in other things rather than just money and, and kind of status on their CV. They're interested in kind of social purpose, like having a good, work-life balance, uh, learning like new and interesting skills. So I do actually think that like if companies can offer that, people will stick around. I think it's just that if they're not offering that, people will be more willing to leave. Um, and, and on top of that, that it is quite messy. So I think I'm always a bit careful to, so to say that like we're living in this new world where every graduate is spending six months in a career and then moving across and the, the corporate program is dead. I think it's always more messy than that, than people say it is, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely role specific as well. I think where there's exactly. that trajectory and there's that obvious pillar in terms of how you step up into a senior role, it becomes that it's very hard to break that, especially within professions where it's like medicine or it's becoming a lawyer. Like it's pretty yeah. clear in terms of you need the credibility of the time. But actually, it's probably with roles where the time isn't the actual most, the biggest variable. It's more about the skill, the experience, and just kind of going for it where it becomes quite different. So in terms of the contrary to what you're saying then, where do you think it applies the most? In what roles do you think it is changing? Yeah, so I think, I think what is changing is the, it's not necessarily like the structure of the, like the fact that people spend a couple of years somewhere and go somewhere else, but it's the content of where they're going. So I think in the past, you said a lot, particularly consult. I'm always going to use consultant as an example because that's what I know the best. So there's obviously going to be a very skewed answer in that sense, but that's all I know. So sorry, everyone else who's not a consultant. Um, but what used to happen in the past is that you do your two years, do two or three years. And the same, I, I guess we go for like accounting as well and banking to an extent. You go and do that for three years. You then go off and do an MBA and then you like join either, maybe you join like a big P firm or you potentially go and join like a Coca-Cola or a big, a big corporate and you become a manager in that corporate and then you, you know, hopefully raise the ranks and become a board member or whatever. That was kind of a very typical path of, of what used to happen. Now, I think what's happening now is that people are still doing that thing of after two or three years, potentially moving on, but they're going and doing different stuff. So I think now what's happening, instead of going off to an MBA, MBA is becoming a lot less popular, I think, from my personal experience and, and looking at the evidence in the UK um, and are going off and doing two or three years of that profession, but then potentially going off and working in product at a startup or working in a VC uh, and then potentially going from there to become an angel investor or founding their own company or you know, joining a founding team. That's kind of the big difference. So instead of going off to do MBAs and learning stuff there and becoming an executive big corporate, people are looking more about the startup world as somewhere where you can, you know, really learn a lot more, you can grow a lot more, and you can potentially kind of gain the experience and start your own business in, in an economy or a ecosystem which has a lot more money than it did 15 years ago in terms of VC money and seed money and, and angel uh, angel investment. Hmm. And do you think that route is changing because? the steps to get there in terms of their desirability are changing or because the outcome itself is changing. So previously you said a board member of say a company like Coca-Cola and working yeah. your way up. Do you think that's something people now still want or do you think that's now being replaced with becoming a VC, becoming an entrepreneur, becoming a founder? Like, is that, is that what's affecting the steps or do you think the steps are still different but are working towards that same outcome? So when you say the same outcome, you mean people will still eventually want to become heads of corporates eventually, but this is a different way to get there. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Is it? Is yeah, it, cool. it I think, no, I, I think the steps are changing because people are 
A, getting more impatient. I, I think people aren't particularly enamored by the whole, like, okay, I'll spend 10 years working in a corporate and, and you know, climbing my way up. I think that's becoming less and less appealing. I think the idea of working for a big P fund, again, is becoming less appealing because, again, it's a large company, you probably have less ownership. Um, I think people like the idea of having a bit more agency, even when they're older in their careers, not just graduates. And startups will give you that. They'll, they'll give you that ability to actually work in a smaller team, affect more change, do whatever you want to do, work with exciting new technologies. I mean, ultimately, I think, whereas in the past, corporates were potentially leading the way when it comes to implementing new ideas and technologies, that's probably more the other way around, where startups are kind of leading the way uh, in terms of te you know, emerging technologies or implementing those new ideas and technologies in a fast way, and corporates kind of catching up. So that's, in terms of where you want to be, that, that seems to be like a more exciting place. And quite frankly, the money as well. I mean, you can earn quite a lot becoming working in a VC or working in an early startup where you've got equity options and, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty lucrative. So I think that's, that's the thing that's also changed. Yeah, it's almost like taking on that risk and backing yourself as a, like taking part in the startup, the equity part of it, I think is really interesting as well. Like being on that journey is really, really a big one. And perhaps then with that higher turnover, where it's realized in the certain roles in which we're speaking about, yeah. how do employers retain those graduates for the medium to long term? So even if the standard used to be to switch companies, then if it's now yeah. switching to different companies faster, yeah. the first question being, should they even aim to retain like graduates or is it the sense of like, do they need to offer different experiences to them to keep them on throughout that medium for long term? Yeah, it's a difficult one to answer because I think it depends on the type of company. So I think for the big consulting firm, banks, et cetera, I think they have always had a model where actually they churn is built into what they do because if everyone stayed, then there would be like too many partners at the end for them to, to you know have an equal size of the buyer. So they need to have some churn along the way. I think for kind of, if you're thinking about startups or maybe like, more kind of scale up startup type businesses which are new in this field of trying to attract graduates. I think the key the key thing that we've seen, which is is a bit of a problem, particularly, I mean, even if you look at places like um, Deliveroo and Babylon Health, you know, these, these are big businesses now, they're scale ups, but they have a lot of people, but they haven't had the time to mature as an organization. So they haven't built out those really clear kind of learning and development pathways. So what we've seen is people, there's quite a lot of churn of people who are like two or three years in because they can't see where they go next. Because as you say, it's not like a really, there's the progression lines aren't clear. So I think developing stronger kind of learning and development pathways of where you could potentially end up is really important. And I think startups in particular that have grown really fast, like understandably struggle to do that because they spent so long, you know, or, a small amount of time scaling from 20 people to 100 people they haven't had time to really consider how do you develop how do you create a pathway for someone's career and I think that won't that will entice people if you can say well actually you as an individual will grow to this after two years or if you if you can prove xyz to us you can get to this level and this is the training will help you to get there and you know so on and so on that will help provide uh, employees or graduates with, with a kind of okay like that that makes a lot of sense I can see how my career can progress because I think they can bring a lot of this excitement at the start and the first six months is very great because you're trying lots of different things. You're doing lots of cool working operations, working in marketing, whatever it is, but you need to have some sense of, okay, where do I go next? And I think startups, as they do grow into scale-ups, need to be able to invest the time into that. And I think that's, that's always a difficult thing to do when you're so focused on kind of selling a product or meeting investors' needs and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And as people think on that individual level, as they try and plan ahead, for what that path might look like, whether it's defined or, or not. Yeah. 
for you, when does a graduate career come to an end? You know, when does it just become career? Is it is it two years out, three, five? Like, have you changed a couple yeah. of times? Kind of what's the line? And and I guess again, it's the, the caveat is it's the, it's different everywhere, but uh, we need to all be talking the same language, right? Yeah. So I think I think it's something we've actually talked about quite a lot. So for us, it's sort of like when you and when we've interviewed people, it's sort of like at the point where when you're thinking to apply to jobs, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily apply for the entry level. You think you'd be thinking of applying at the kind of senior analyst or, or associate level rather than junior level. Um, mm. I think that's when you stop being a graduate, when you sort of feel like you can apply to not the entry level position. I think I know that entry level positions at the moment are quite controversial because they seem to still require a level of experience and probably not worth getting into that whole minefield but ultimately it's when you feel okay I've got enough experience here just to apply for the next level up in a job posting not the not the most junior one I think is basically when you stop being a graduate. And how far do you think that that comes down to skill and, and, and just confidence kind of what's the paradigm individual should be playing up because uh, you know, I haven't got too much data in front of me, but there seems yeah. to always be something in the news saying, oh, such and such, you need to just pitch yourself two levels above where you think you are and that's where you'll be kind of like, you know, is it is it just as much about confidence and skill in that scenario? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's if you look back on your career and you feel like you've done, you've, you've worked in a situation where you're, you have developed a certain like skill set, which is which is something you've learned over the time of your job, or you've learned a lot about industry that makes you some not an expert, but you've got uh, proprietary knowledge. That means that you've, you're no longer entry level, and you have either skills or a knowledge of an industry to then add value to an organisation. I think that's when you stop being a graduate. I think if you still so, for example, if I was you know I'd spent a year doing marketing uh, in an ed tech company, and I then wanted to apply for a business analyst role. I probably wouldn't be able to apply for a business analyst role that requires more than a, less than a year's experience because I haven't done that and I haven't got the skill set or the, the kind of uh, knowledge to be able to then apply that in a way that wouldn't mean I'd start again. So I think it actually depends where you're going. Whereas if I was to apply to a marketing role, I could say, well, I've done a year of, of you know, building and scaling um, you know, this, this business with, with the help of you know, SEO management, whatever it is, I've got a set of skills that actually I can then go into that business and kind of, you know, from the day one, start adding a bit of value. And I think, then you wouldn't be applying for a graduate role. So it depends how those skills you're, you've got match up to the role. So we've seen a few grads actually in our in our experience who've done like sales for a bit for six, six, six to eight months and then they're playing, applying for marketing roles. Now, they would struggle probably to apply for a marketing role that's the level above because they haven't actually got much experience there. Um, they may have the raw skills, so they, they then have to, you know, not take a step back, but take a step sideways in terms of applying for a, a you know, an entry level or a graduate level uh, marketing role. I think that's really interesting as well because often the skill sets and the skill stacks combine so that I'm currently yeah. in a position where I feel like I've learned quite a bit about marketing previously throughout university, throughout running the previous business. And now I'm learning a lot about ops and operations. And I feel like combining those two is almost like delivering customer experience on a level of what we're doing. I think that in terms of how I'm feeling, I'm conveying that and putting that forward in the current work we do is really valuable. But then I also yeah. think that that almost creates roles for itself. So I don't know if there's something in that for people who have a skill set, say, in sales, probably longer than six to eight months, but say it's like two years, and then you have two years in marketing, and then combine them, maybe client success. I don't know, but they can combine them in a different way and approach it in a different angle. Do you think that's respected and something that they can actually effectively do? Or is that something they have to work on within an organization rather than applying externally? 
Yeah, I think it's definitely something you can, that makes a lot of sense. And particularly in startups where the role function is like less important and the outcome you're delivering is more important. So like, for example, marketing, like growth is a very popular role that comes up now in startups, which is essentially like a combination of sort of strategic kind of business analysis in terms of like target customer segments and looking at conversion rates, but also kind of the creative side of like which marketing what content should we be A-B testing? So it's like a combination of like traditional marketing skills in terms of creating content, but also the kind of data skills needed to look at conversion rates and look at growth patterns and all that sort of stuff. So I think particularly in a startup, there's a lot of those things do combine a lot better. I think, but as a general point, it's about can you, in an interview or in an application, can you explain that? In a, can you communicate that added value? That's the key thing. Because if you can say to me, okay, great, you can combine these two skills. And I think in your business, which is doing X, Y, Z, I could actually be really valuable because you need a much more customer-centric um, approach to your marketing, which is very, it's very kind of divorced from the product at the moment. I think that would be, okay, great. That, that's a lot of added value you can, you can give me. So as long as you can kind of communicate the added value of those two things together, you're in a good place. And I think startups in general lend themselves better to that because they're less like functional. You know, you wouldn't be able to probably do that if you're applying for a big, you know, applying to sort of a Unilever. You probably, that probably wouldn't, your experience in both both sides wouldn't be maybe as helpful as it would be in a startup where it's all about the customer and there aren't as many silos. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the right way is how to pitch it, how to combine it together and how to make a, a meaningful difference there as well. Uh, I guess with that then, what have you seen as the equivalent with the candidates, with the graduates you work with? Like, have you seen yeah. that they are able to do that and able to pitch themselves like, have you seen that confidence is perhaps the biggest missing thing like what element in terms of their skill set do you work on the most because you find it's missing when they first join you yeah it's a good question so we actually although we've talked a lot about roles for the last 10 minutes we don't focus on on roles particularly because actually for graduates going into startups it's like the role titles can an operations person at exec at one company can mean something completely different to an ops exec at another company so we we actually just focus quite closely on skills um, so in general we look at actually actually five attributes is what we look for when we're, we're selecting people um, so the first is kind of quantitative ability so how good are you at reading data understanding data looking at patterns and information you know stem degree that sort of thing so that's one thing the other is problem solving so if you're given a difficult problem it big problem can you break it down into sensible sets that make a lot logical sense um, so that's the second thing the third is communication both written and verbal so can you like understand how to tailor a message to an audience and can you could deliver that in a really, really persuasive way, both in the way you speak and the way that you uh, write. So that's the, the third and the fourth one. So the fifth is around kind of like feedback. So this is actually an interesting one, which we've developed looking at the data from our applicants. So the ones who've done really successful in our program have been the ones who are basically incredibly like humble and most they're the ones who are best able to take on feedback and learn from it. So can you display that during the interview process. And that is actually a really strong indicator of success long-term. And the last one is just proactivity. So do you have evidence of proactivity through your time at university, through your internships, through the way you answer questions? So those are, the, those are the broad attributes we look for. And importantly, we don't look for everyone to be like a 10 out of 10 in each one, but we do look for people who are particularly good in certain areas. So it's fine to be very, very quantitative and very logical. Um, and it's okay if you're very, you know, very high in those areas, but also not potentially that great when it comes to communication. Um, so we, we look for people who just have a high quotients in certain areas. We don't necessarily look for people who are like good or very good in certain areas overall. So that, that's the first thing to say. I think in terms of skills, yeah, it does depend on the particular graduate. But I th I'd say the thing that, that, that 
we try and still, particularly through the initial part of the program, is kind of confidence in how to sell themselves and how to like communicate what they've done and what they've achieved and actually like feel that they can do that and interview effectively, which I think is the one thing that they often lack. They're often just not particularly good at interviewing. I think it's just something that is maybe practice or isn't badly it is badly taught at universities. I'm not sure what it is, but just like the ability to actually structure interview questions, um, think about how to sell yourself and position yourself. Um, you know, I think that maybe there's a sort of British humbleness about it as well. People are like reluctant to say this is what they've done and this is what they achieved. So I think that's actually the biggest thing. I mean, we try and choose great people. I'm not going to lie about that, but I think it's the confidence is where we help them a little bit when it comes to interviews or the interview process. Yeah, so I wonder what I wonder what's the main missing piece then. Because I guess we're kind of coming at that part of the conversation from two different ways in terms of what you're trying to do differently, but also yeah. with what existing companies can adapt around and how candidates can get themselves to a position where they're more yeah. comfortable applying or, or getting to that later stage. So I guess the, the point for for kind of confidence. Uh, you've got those five things to take away, but also the kind of evidence-based approach of saying, I did this, it got Y out of that thing. Yeah. Like, I think that, that's a key takeaway yeah. too. Um, but I wonder what that means for employers in terms of saying how they can adapt their existing graduate you know, program, their recruitment uh, outlook. What can they be looking for to better kind of get their candidates assess based on those five because i think part of that challenge seems to be that the interview process is the point of failure just as much as the application stage if that makes sense yeah so so that that's why i mean i, I think again i think it's really difficult to answer that in general because like every we've developed that framework very much based on what startups look for and like that's a very mm -hmm. startup centric approach that we've taken based on the skills that they look for what we've seen is successful what are the things that, and again, even then we don't look for everyone to have, we need to make sure that you have at least a few of them in a high degree. And we try to develop a process, which is like, I suppose, not just about the interview, but also about the application. We have a written submission and, and questions that you have to answer, which are not interview focused. It's not just about the interview in terms of selection of, of people. But I think for, um, I mean, for the interview process in general, I think the, the what we've seen and actually applied, who are you know quite a really interesting firm looking at, the behavioral science behind interviewing is things like tell me a time when you've done xyz are not particularly effective questions what you want to try and do is get people to actually practice like actual um tasks or actual activities that they might actually potentially do in their job because that obviously is the best way of seeing how they how they potentially perform and it's in, it's a much more objective way of doing things because it means that you're you're actually getting away from um the kind of coaching that happens around and obviously we do that as well but we try and be quite objective in how we choose people but in general i think interview questions that are focused on experience or tell me a time when tend to favor people who've you know have been privileged enough to go into internships or go and do unpaid work and as a result have more stuff to say but actually aren't necessarily the best for the people for the job because you haven't given them actual real world examples so i suppose the biggest thing would be you know actually use tasks that people can go and do whether it's case studies or situations where okay you're at work this has happened what do you do in response those type of questions are much more effective at actually testing how people think and again written questions are quite useful i think when people speak uh biases tend to come into play as an interviewer so having as many written questions as you can or written submissions as you can is, is very helpful because it helps reduce that bias and, and you know that tendency to go for people who've got more experience because they've had 
you know better education because they've had more money as, as kids or whatever yeah no it's really, really good advice and to hop back to a point from previously i think the yeah. balance of not having the expectation that those five things you have to be second all of them you have to be 10 out of 10 all of them is massive for candidates and for grads coming out because that's almost the perception isn't it i think that yeah. you get to the end of your uni journey you've had 18 20 years whatever of education and you know you've completed it and now off you go into the world whereas actually the mindset that startups particularly want is that yeah. lifelong learner student mindset where actually yes you've got your own skills where you're really good you're nine out of ten on two out of the five or whatever it is yeah but actually you you've learned how to learn at uni and you can come out and you can pick up new skills quickly and apply that and uh like charlie said skill stack to the point where you can be adaptable because that's what startups need in that kind of fast-paced environment yeah i think that's true i didn't think i'd say to that is i mean i'll actually bring out an example from some of our partners quell which is a kind of gaming and uh, fitness app, fitness um, uh, company. Um, they um, their, their CEO Cam Brookhouse, he's an ex McKinsey, and he he told us actually that what they used they did some analysis on their graduates who've gone through the whole McKinsey kind of process and ended up as partners. And actually, the things that they were bad at when they were a graduate, they were still very bad at, weren't particularly good at. But the things that they were good at, they were even better at. So because actually, you don't. And I say this a lot to our grads. There's no point if you're like a brilliant communicator and you're a creative person. Like, there's not a huge amount of point you're going trying to become a you know, software engineer because you probably will be okay at it because you'll practice it a lot and that's like great and you know how to you know write a bit of code. But you're not going to be brilliant at it. You need to focus on the bits that you're really good at, and that's actually where you're going to end up. You know, making the most out of your career and making the most in terms of responsibility and money and all that sort of thing. Like being really excellent in something that other people potentially aren't, rather than trying to be like quite good at everything and do courses in xyz and i'm not saying you shouldn't do that but like don't don't over index on the things that you're not like you know aren't your strengths like actually over index on your strengths and that's where you'll see the see the most out of your career and that's what we try and do with our approach you know people who are really really good communicators that's what they're good at like okay make sure you can do a little bit of the other stuff but like ultimately that's where you're going to you know be well known for so to focus that Mm, so like double down on what you're already good at and become great at it rather than becoming yeah. a whole wide generalist as well. That definitely makes sense. I think a really interesting point in terms of like bringing this into current programs and how to compete with the big corporates is that the corporates almost do the sourcing of graduates really early. They'll start in yeah. September out of a final year student round and they'll start thinking, okay, we'll, we'll kind of attract them now and we'll close applications in January. Like that's loads of leeway for them to start in june with graduates and with startups perhaps yeah. they're trying to think to hire a lot quicker but i guess how can we yeah. as a future of the graduate career and the future of the engagement for startups how can they engage final year students the best of them quote unquote and pick them up early while also remaining adaptable to their needs as a startup as well yeah i, I think it's to be honest with you, it's going to be, it's really difficult for early stage startups to plan that far ahead. I, think, I just think it is incredibly, um, like ultimately what happens is you raise a fund, you raise a round of money, um, a, a seed round or a, or a series A. And at that point you have the cash to be like, okay, now I need to start hiring ASAP. You can't really, it's quite difficult to predict that seven or eight months in advance. Maybe we'll be in a point in the future when, you know, hopefully companies like Jumpstart can be the mechanism which can say, look, you can potentially reserve a place um, through us on your graduate, uh, you know, as a graduate starting in the following summer 
uh, and they can maybe do some initial work experience beforehand. But I think unless there's like a structure for them to rely on in place, I think it's going to be pretty difficult for an early stage start to do that. Now, I think scale-ups like your Monzo's and even companies like Wheezy's will probably get to a point where they can start having internship programs in place and therefore kind of pre-select people because they just know they'll be growing and have a steady stream of income and, uh, and funding coming in. Um, I think until, and also actually, I think there's a quite a few Y Combinator companies coming out recently that are trying to help a little bit with a sort of internship part, which is like creating a platform for startups to like find students to do work, almost like in a sort of a task fabric type way, but in a much more kind of student-friendly uh, model. Um, so I think that that might help in the sense that you can have people in for a summer that can do some work and you, you then know that, you know, know their skills and know that they're ready for the job and you can then hire them the next the next year. But I think having a program that you can like, as a, as a CTA startup, hire someone eight months in advance, I think will be very difficult without some external help just because you won't, there's too many uncertainties to, to commit to that. Mm. And there's also quite a lot of interesting potential solutions to this of like, the obvious one that goes in my head is like, why not hire them part-time alongside their funding studies? And then you can try before you buy a little bit. But I guess it's on both sides. And the graduate wants security from June, July, but yeah. the startup wants flexibility until they can hire ASAP and get it over the line. So like, it's balancing the two of them in a really interesting way as well. Yeah. I mean, what we see a lot of is actually graduates who've done corporate internships and hated them and therefore applied for us. Um, so, you know, it can also work the other way. Yeah, definitely. That brings it out as well. You can experience more about yeah. what they do as well. I guess this kind of brings us to the future of graduate careers. And I guess kind of hand this back over to you, Kabir. Like, yeah. what does the future look like the next five, 10 years? Like, what is the, the workplace of tomorrow for graduates? And like, how does that look different to how we see it today? And are our assumptions going to be completely changed in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I think, well, firstly, I think we always over-index on change. I think things will probably change less than we think. I think that, firstly, to start with, like, the concept of a graduate in university, like, I don't think that a three- to four-year university course model, I think it will take a time to change, but I think it definitely, like, isn't quite right for purpose, um, hasn't been for a while. Probably the pandemic has shown that it's, like, you don't need to spend four years studying, like, a, a subject to, to necessarily have the skill to then go into the workplace. That so there is a mismatch there that is clearly... I think will be addressed, whether it's shorter courses or like a year of a very, a very intensive kind of studying of history of politics and then applying it in a certain way in the same way that you have industrial placements for some science subjects, whether it's kind of more interdisciplinary courses where you do your history for a year and you actually do like your data science alongside that or whatever it is. I think that is going to change. So the idea of a graduate will probably change. So you'll probably have people who are maybe younger going into the job market or who have more like appropriate skills whether it be being able to to code or being able to kind of understand how data science works or the, how the product life works or you know more like workplace skills so I think that's probably the first thing that will change I think secondly I do think that there is a move I mean obviously I'm slightly biased saying this but I think there is a move away from corporate programs like people are getting a bit fed off of them I think um, it's a combination of coronavirus accelerating that as well a little bit. You know, a lot of the graduate programs were cancelled last year. People then found other other employment that they probably maybe you know enjoyed just as much or have actually found is actually you know right for them. Um, so that I think will that 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 like trend I think will will start to accelerate a little bit as well. Um, I think again that I can only see there being more and more VC and you know, startup related money going into the system. So I think we'll see a lot more student founders or student incubators. I think I've already seen a few people, um, you know, 
contacting me about these sort of things. So I think you'll see a lot more kind of student type entrepreneurial organizations popping up. Uh, yeah, I think the startup ecosystem will, will continue to grow. Whether, whether that actually ends up being more scale-ups and, and kind of you know, unicorn companies at the end, or whether we still have this kind of situation where Google and Facebook buy up every startup whenever they get reasonably big, I don't know. But I think there'll be more and more activity there. Uh, and yeah, I, I suppose, anything else? In terms of like actual roles and, and skills, I think, um, I think you can already see it with marketing at the moment in that creative creative type industries or creative type roles will be supplemented more and more with understanding how to look at data and how to use data to optimize certain things in general. So that's probably my last like point around the roles, I'd say. Um, yeah, I think that those are probably the main things. My only other caveat is I think things change less than people think. Um, so those things might take a while. It might be like gradual changes along those three or five dimensions I talked about rather than like a step change. That, that often doesn't happen like that yeah it's always like slow gradual and then you look back and it feels like a step change but actually it's, it's been probably, gradual yeah. each year to get there as well and definitely super interesting thoughts across there and i guess the question to it on this as well would be what would you want to see from employees and employers to get there so maybe you've got this ideal picture and i know you're kind of trying to be realistic with it in terms of not yeah. thinking but how would you want employees and employers to think more about the steps that they can take to get there and if there are any step changes they can implement along that journey yeah so i think the one thing that i would say from a kind of um corporate employee so i'm going to because again i find it hard to talk about the whole employment market because there's so many different types so to split corporates and employer as a corporates and startups i think from a corporate point of view what i think would be a good move would be more things like secondments or more kind of getting people so we used to get this quite a lot at Deloitte and there was a start where people would you know, spend three or four months on a secondment, so paid by Deloitte working in you know, the civil service to working in industry. And I think there'll be a lot of change using that same model, but maybe working in startups and actually getting your employees hands-on experience of working in small-scale, fast-growing companies that are adopting technology that are using the you know, um, best of practice when it comes to you know, innovation and the way they, the way that they actually run projects and and ideas. I think will that that would be a really positive change because you almost have this world where the the corporate or the consulting firm is kind of you know overseeing your overall development and owning your development overall, but but allowing you to kind of work quite autonomously in in smaller organisations and like getting a bit of a knowledge exchange there. I think that's one innovation I think would be which is already starting a little bit, which I think would be quite valuable. I think the other would be. Um, around so from a kind of startup perspective it's actually kind of repeating what i said earlier but having more of a kind of learning and development mindset around how you can develop graduate careers and using things like potentially like jumpstart hopefully but learnably and other kind of platforms that allow graduates to have a like a, a pathway that maybe even if it's a company you can't provide that internally you can kind of export that to external providers who can provide you with the training that you need along the way and like a proper pathway that will help you get there so I think that would be a good step for startups to, to, to move towards and that would help some of the churn I was talking about that the Babylons and the, of this world sometimes find once they're starting to mature as an organization and, and then from the flip side you know um, big corporates can start to, to evolve these sort of economic models more and more. Amazing. Really great place to close out today's episode. Kibir, thank you so much for jumping on again. And of course, no people can find you on, on LinkedIn and jumpstart at jumpstart-uk.com. So we will close the episode off there. Hope you had a good time. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Take it easy. That's it for today from the House Hack podcast. The best place to find us is LinkedIn at House Hack Events, the company page, and personally on LinkedIn at Ryan McGee and Real Charlie Rogers. 
We really appreciate your listening support. Leave us a review if you enjoyed our episode and we'll see you the next one.